Hi, I'm Candace Huber, and you're listening to Novel Ideas on WRBH, a weekly discussion of all things literary. This week, I have with me a scribe called Quest, a.k.a. Michael Quest Moore, who is a poet, educator, actor, playwright, and activist in that order. He is a two-time National Slam Poetry Championship title winner and founding member of Team SNO, which is Slam New Orleans. New Orleans three-time national championship title winning slam poetry team, which is really cool. And I want you to talk about that a little bit. His poetry led him to the classroom where he has served the last seven years as an educator. His work as an educator has been highlighted on NPR and the Voices of Educators series and taken him to Oxford University to speak on school reform. He also has a self-produced or a produced a self-titled CD called A Scribe Called Quest. And his debut book of poetry, Blind Visions, can be found online at lulu.com. And he has now released a new book of poetry called Sleeper Cell, which is what we're going to talk about today. He's going to be at the Tennessee Williams Festival coming up. So welcome, Michael Questmore. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be here. Appreciate so that. tell us a little bit about your poetry, like what made you want to write poetry versus other forms of art that you could have done? Um. I'm glad you phrased it like that. So the quick uh, version of the, the long story that I used to tell is 10 years old, I was visited by a uh, master teacher, master poet named Biadun Oyewole, of the last poets. He came to my school, PS20 in Brooklyn where I'm from, and um, gave us this gift of spoken word. And little did I know that it was him and his crew, the last poets, who were being sampled on Tribe Called Quest albums that I was listening to at the same time. Oh, right? cool. So that's where I first got the seed. And, you know, I always had a love for hip-hop, always had a love for spoken word because of that. I had a love for poetry even before that, love for just literary, you know, everything. Richard Wright, C.S. Lewis, I was blessed with that when I'm like six, seven, eight. Mm -hmm. um, and so by the time I got older and decided what I wanted to do, um, hip-hop always appealed, but spoken word gave me that conduit to the heart. It gave me that avenue to be able to talk about a lot of um, emotional and personal issues that you didn't see exploded in hip-hop is readily, you know? Yes. So now we've seen the genre change, but... Uh, we're watching it progressively change, but uh, at the time, you know, it was like the late 90s, early 2000s, you're talking about the bling bling era, and it's all right. about materialism and money, cash, and you know, the rest of it. So, um, yeah, spoken word was just the, the practical choice. If I wanted to get all of my feelings, as we say, you know, that's what I had to do. Yes. And uh, and talk about uh, Slam New Orleans. Did you found that team? Uh, and then how kind of how did it progress? And and just what is it in general for those folks who may not know? Yeah. So Slam New Orleans is um, a team that I co-founded with a collective of amazing artists um, here in New Orleans. Um, at least uh, about five of us who kicked it off. OK. And uh, really about four. And then the, the last member to come on was who's now becoming famous, Terry and Tank Ball. She was a mm -hmm. part of that collected too. And so as we can see, some of us come through and move on from those, you know, those days. I was with them about seven years. Um, I've been really wrapped up in a lot of projects at this point and, you know, activism, organizing, what have you. So that's taking that place. But uh, they're still going. They're still first Sunday every month at the Ashi Cultural Center. Uh, did very well in the National Poetry Slam last year. Didn't win, but, you know, we, <laughs> we won a couple of times. And I yeah. was, I was uh, you know, blessed to be able to experience that in 2013. Awesome. And tell us about your poetry, your new book as well. So what what is the poetry about in this book and, and what inspired you to write it? Yeah, so uh, Sleeper Cell is really just a collection of one thread of the kind of writings I've done for the last 10 years. So the last 10 years, you know, um, have been just like post-Katrina, just uh, very heavily sociopolitically 
intense climate, you mm-hmm. know, in the country and particularly here in New Orleans. So I've got a lot of threads that um, I've written that have just kind of inadvertently happened just by way of me writing. And I kind of put them into the personal and the political. So Sleeper Cell is that political piece where, of course, the political is personal, personal is political, so it's going to have the overlap. Right. But the next book that I'm going to put out is going to focus a lot more on relationships, family, what have you. But this one is the one where I'm pretty much trying to give voice to the voices as poets are charged to do. Mm-hmm. But it's my voice in particular, that voice in particular that has to be silenced at the boardroom. It has to be silenced, um, you know, sometimes at the family dinner table or at the museum tour when you hear misinformation and things of that nature in times where we, we can find ourselves silenced by aggressions, both macro and micro, that come from, you know, a lot of, you know, age-old systems of oppression, right? Yes. And so um, I'm speaking it specifically from an African-American male lens, but that's one that still lends itself to a whole lot of other lenses of POC, of people who are marginalized and what have you. And I'm speaking directly to, you know, what it feels like to have to silence and hush your truths to keep your job, or to keep the, the, keep the, 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 the family dinner uh, at peace. Right. That particular Thanksgiving, you know what I mean? And so it's allegorical, it's anecdotal, it's me, you know, telling these stories. A lot of it is narrative, and a lot of it is just like, you know, small little insights here and there. Yes, and I think that it is particularly relevant today as well with the political environment and different things going on out there that uh, that I think your your poetry is is very relevant. And I do think that because I read a few, you know, I read some of the poems. I didn't get a chance to read the whole thing, but mm-hmm. I definitely read some of them. And I'm like, yeah, this can I think anybody can relate. So I really like the way that you wrote it in a way that it is an African-American male lens. But I mm-hmm. think anyone who has ever felt marginalized in some way could can relate to what you're writing. So I think even though it's that lens, it's still pretty universal. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's like that whole blade of grass thing. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. if you can find, you know, truth in a blade of grass, you can find universal truth. You know what I mean? So yes. my African-American male cisgendered lens is the blade of grass through which I see the cosmos. And when I can break outside of it, even better, you know, for it. You know what I mean? Cause yes. Because it really can reach into other people's experiences and lives. But, um, yeah, and the name Sleeper Cell itself was actually kind of calling to the matrix, if you will. If you yeah, I was wondering about it. that. Yeah. yeah. Just like the, all of the, the, the people in the pods that were asleep and couldn't wake up. And so it's basically, you know, calling to that. It's somewhere between like this, you know, futuristic dystopian landscape and a W.B. Du Boisian, you know, double consciousness. It's, it's somewhere in those two. Yeah. And, uh, and I was going to ask that actually, like where that name came from or how did you think of that name? Um, yeah, and I didn't think of that name. I got to give direct props and shout out, as I always do, to uh, a guy named Tashambe Shante. We were just having a conversation one night. Um, he does organizing work with me, and it just happened to, you know, leak over into talking about what it felt like to be marginalized in all these different ways. It's like, yeah, it's like we're sleeper cells. It's like everybody's, like, asleep or pretending to be asleep inside of their respective cells, and you got to, you know, whisper to the guy, the girl next to you in the next cell, and like, yo, did you see that? Did you see that? Mm-hmm. So it was basically that. Yeah, I think it's very appropriate <laughs> yeah. um, for the for your book as well. All right, would you be willing to read a couple poems for us to give us an idea? Absolutely, absolutely. So um, I'm going to read this real small ditty. Uh, I would say it's kind of a soft entry into the conversation. But uh, yeah, here goes. Wild Thing. Dear Max, can you tell me where the wild things go? After you put your fantasies to sleep, once you finish Joseph Conrading your way through the heart of distant darkness and return to comfortable sterility 
in your suburban safe box home? What does your boyish imagination do with all the yellow eyes, sharp teeth, and menacing fangs that you subdued into submission with the mere glare of your brazen white boy stare? Where do the wild things go, Max, when unleashed from the bondage of your gaze? No benevolent master left to sanction their laughter, to stamp their wiles with approval, chalk borders around their unkempt edges, and manicure their mania. When you are done with all the keeping, Max, who keeps you? I like that one. Yeah, I, I kind of like it more on, on second second. second re- yeah, it's, uh, it's a callback. I like it because it's a callback to where the wild things are, which is something right. I think we all read as kids and Absolutely. turning it on its head and making it a little. Yeah, and I think, um, especially speaking to the lens, I think when I said African-American male lens, I think that's very simplified version of kind of categorizing or identifying or organizing who I am like the and where I'm coming from, like the depths of where that lens comes from, mm-hmm. right? And so you're talking about, you know, my, my African ancestry and the way that that informs my psyche and just the, 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 the belief systems and the mannerisms and the patterns that have, like, replicated themselves through centuries in terms of how we express ourselves as a people, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, that in particular, I kind of owe it to uh, something that I think is still practiced in West Africa, which is animism, the belief that, you know, everything is trying to tell you something, mm-hmm. right? And so even this children's book, is always trying to tell you something from the from the framework of another person's psyche. So when I see where the wild things are, I don't just see, you know, this this innocent children's book about this little suburban kid going out into the great blue yonder. I also see like, you know, Western imperialism and colonialism coming through in, in, in the tropes on, on the low. You know what I mean? Yeah. If you really pull back the layers in terms of like how this kid navigates the world. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a very different children's story than Little Black Sambo, for example. Yes. Which is still coming from that same lens. You know what I mean? And so yeah, I mean, this is the soft entry. I'll give you all another poem that's a little bit more yes. directly into what that looks like and feels like. And I think the two that um, you were interested in uh, kind of like flip sides of the same coin. Yes. So I'll jump into the other one. Okay, great. All right. When the white guy calls your not-quite-girlfriend a bitch and you remain silent, it's not that you don't want to pulverize the blood from his skull Gouge his eyes from their sockets. Pull the still-beating heart from his pale chest and say, See, all lives matter. All lives do matter except yours, shithead. It's not that you don't want to beat that bitch with a bottle. Plunge the remaining jagged edges into his throat and drag towards the bottom of his ears like he dragged for your not-quite-girlfriend. But see, the way your social anxiety is set up, you were too dear in the headlights of smug white boy cynicism to see it coming, too caught in the crosshairs of his sarcasm to notice the switchblade narcissism of the tongue wielding it, the darting blue snatch of his wife's eyes chiming in with cheerleading smiles and featherweight banter to charm you and your not-quite-girlfriend, the seemingly friendly volley of conversational cannon fodder, the back-and-forth of all while you watch words hop skip and jump over your head like a volleyball game you're too short to play you all brooklyn boy brick and mortar all i don't mess with white folks like that anyway lest they meet me on my terms all macklemore gonna need a dissertation and a cosign and a little bit of blood for the cause before i give him any street credit all half hotel two-fifths blipster three-fifths analog boy in a digital world all perpetual man-child in a broken promised land too socially awkward for most rooms you fit into much less the ones you don't but here you are at a sports bar in New Orleans. You and your not-quite-girlfriend. One of a few tokens in an otherwise good old white boy hipster affair. She trying to bridge the gap between her past and present 
a former white roommate friend and her down for the cause activist, not quite boyfriend, and then this white man in the middle hurling insults and jokes like they're the same thing, most of them leaping just above your head, you let them fly. Even when your heart tells you to make dead birds of them, to aim with precision and shoot his words lifeless from the air he's contaminating them with, but then he says, bitch, easy as asking for the check. He's talking about your night quite girlfriend, who is black. You know it's not the usual missile. Didn't quite follow the trajectory of most projectiles you're used to in Brooklyn, in Tallahassee, in New Orleans. What you used to is, beat that bitch with a bottle. What you used to is, who you calling a bitch, you and I, T-Y? What you used to is, I ain't ice tea and I ain't ice cube, but I had to knock the brother out for being rude. What you used to is, call a black woman out her name and in turn be named everything but a child of God as you book tickets to the most remote island on the planet or prepare to write your own eulogy, which you've known is three and a half decades on planet Earth without that word ever having grazed the ears of a black woman in her presence from the mouth of a man, much less a white one, and that man having lived to tell about it with the same amount of blood in his body so this white man's bitch does not float past you like featherweight banter. It bursts like a nuclear bomb, like something small as pollen, just infiltrated the air in you, detonated and left everything hollow. You look into the face of your not-quite-girlfriend, a small wince, and then she too, hollow, the silence between you, a mushroom cloud. You become the averted eye contact between estranged lovers the morning after Mass's hands went places they had no business, except they did, because both your bodies have always been Mass's business. White man, her friend's husband at the other end of the table, carries on oblivious, business as usual. He, all-American ship at the Gulf of Foreign Territories, not expecting rebuttal. You, all-Somalian pirate, sharpening the blade of your tongue, your anger rusting over beneath pursed lips, your anger, the petrified wood of the oldest African tree that has never known the blood of those southern trees in America, that has never shouldered the weight of black corpses by white hands, but that longs desperately for this white man's weight to be noosed to the ends of your limbs, vice grip between your fingers like your ancestors' necks to rope. Want him to say, I can't breathe. Want to peer into the blue depths of his barren eyes. See if they ring as still water deep as the sorrow presently consuming you. A sorrow deep as the Atlantic and riddled with just as many bones. Want to see if there's any soul beneath all that empty in his eyes. Think maybe you can choke it out of him. Bring it to the surface like a black body resurrected from the ocean floor. Yeah, man. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, do you want to talk a little bit about that one? And um, I don't know how much time we have, but I think it kind of yeah. told its own story. I mean, that's yeah, like a found does. poem. It's like you live through it, and then you go and write it down. It's like there's nothing I can do good about the situation, others than document it and you know try to heal from it. But yeah, um, that's the power of the word and the power of the poetry. Is like these things happen to you, and then you can hopefully try to recreate them or repurpose them through your art. Yes. So that's I, essentially what the whole book tries to do. So thank you for being here with me today. Michael Questmore. Sleeper Cell is his book. Go out and buy it. And he'll be at the Tennessee Williams Festival later on this month on a panel about Tennessee Williams and the black man. Yes, Tennessee Williams and the black man. Okay. Yes, so the theme. Yes, it it definitely is. And social media? Yes, you can follow me on Twitter and uh, Instagram. All my social media handles, Ascribe Called Quest, all underscores beneath the words. There you go. Ascribe Called Quest with underscores. And follow him and definitely check out what he's doing in the activism world as well. You guys Absolutely. know how I feel about that. So definitely check him out. Thanks and so much, 
Yes. And you have been listening to Novel Ideas on WRBH.